Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb. I just got back from Barcelona. What have you been doing? Well, I have been playing a lot of Standard, actually. I'm going to be playing uh, the Fandom Legends Tournament Series, and that is, of course, on Arena. So I've been getting myself back up to speed after a bunch of weeks focused on modern leading up to this MC and of course the MCQ season where I have a modern MCQ this weekend. But the last few days I've just turned my attention pretty squarely to standard and have been parsing that out. You have to play a good deck. You have to do us proud. I am playing the best deck that much. I'm sure of the question is how much have other people accounted for the best deck? We'll have to see. Is this scape shift? It is Scapeshift, and I do think Scapeshift has like a pretty noticeable strategic advantage over the rest of the format. I do think it's something that you can like hard target, but even when you hard target, I think you're just bringing it back to parity, and I don't know if people will go that far for a fandom tournament. And it's also just like my favorite deck in the format. It's the one I enjoy playing the most. I also had some doubts about the way the deck was previously built and got to tweak sideboard slots and a little bit in the main deck, and I think I have it in a better place than it was as I found it, so I'm excited to play the deck in the tournament. As you're listening to this, the tournament's probably already over, and maybe I'm sitting here looking like a fool, getting completely crushed with my Scapeshift deck, but we'll have to see how that goes. Can you beat the dinosaurs? I think dinosaurs is like, if they do their best thing, nobody can beat them. That's kind of what the deck is. Like If you just curve out dramatically, they kind of blow you up, and that's the end of the story. You've seen some Scapeshift decks pick up Fog, as tech against the dinosaur decks. I messed with that. I wasn't super crazy about it. I actually just play Baffling End, and I think if you hit an enabler, you often can find the time to get to a place where you're able to stabilize. I also have more Wraths in three time wipes as opposed to two than the standard list, Deputy Detention in the main deck. So I have ways to steal games. I think it's still dinosaur favored, but I don't think it's as hopeless as it previously felt, I would say. Yeah, not being able to kill the enablers is the big thing for me. So Mm -hmm. the fact that you have Baffling End somewhere and Deputy's main deck makes me pretty happy. Yeah, it was just like a slow evolution. Like, okay, all these decks are beatable. How do you do it? The card that actually I think maybe I differ the most on my opinion of is Veil of Summer. I think the card is just kind of awful in most spots where it's actually at its best is against vampires, which is strange because you can just afford to cycle it very regularly. And if they do have something like Legion's End, you're able to protect your army, which often comes up to be important. But against the Teferi decks and the Esper decks, it's just really hard to set up. And your entire game is based around fighting Teferi. And once you've successfully done that, you don't care as much about Veil of Summer. Also, you just play like a slow grindy game. And I think people anticipate you're supposed to be setting up Scapeshift all the time. Scapeshift isn't even that good of a card in the deck. Like you just want to play your lands and get some zombies at a slow pace. And right. using Veil doesn't really do anything to set that up. So I'm pretty low on that card. I'm still playing it. But there were points where I just wanted it completely out of my 75. And I think if I had a bit more time, I would explore those options and also explore trimming Scapeshift a little bit. Like, I think it needs to be in the deck, but I'm not 100% convinced you have to play four copies. Yeah, it definitely seems like a card that you would shave in sideboarding a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I've been playing Esper Hero in Standard and liking it, and I need to put out a piece of content on this deck at some point because it seems like the rest of the world has kind of fallen behind. They haven't really updated their list. They're still playing crap like Elite Guard Mage. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I don't know. Someone ping me about that. Make like a living sideboard guide or something for this deck because I think it's really good right now. 
Well, give us a little sneak peek. What are the core tenets of your deck versus everyone else's? I'm assuming you're high on deputy of attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, I agree. Like, there was a very short period of time where that card was not good. And now that people are playing like vampires, dinosaurs, and scape shift, I think that card is incredible again. So I am back to four deputies. I started with three sore and vengeful blood lords. I'm down to two now. I don't, you just have so many sideboard cards that are great. And I think I finally found a configuration that makes me happy. Nice. It sounds like we have very similar thoughts. The other deck I was considering playing was Esper Hero. I also think that's in a good place. We did very similar things with our Sorens and our Deputy of Detentions. I do think that card is excellent right now. have access to three copies of my Scapeshift deck, two main. And I didn't go as far as four copies main when I was playing Esper Hero, but I did have three at several points. And it's great. It's an incredible card. I felt like all of my games were close with Esper Hero, but sometimes there's just a deck that makes everything feel like easy mode. And that's how I look at Scapeshift right now. There's so many matchups that just feel like easy mode. And I hear people spout off, oh, I have a favorable matchup against Scapeshift. I have a favorable matchup against Scapeshift. And then I play against that deck and I'm like, how do you ever beat me in a million years? Like people talking Esper being favored against Scapeshift. I just don't get it unless they're pointed really hard in that direction. And granted, every deck can point really hard in that direction. It's just a question of, are they going to? Yeah, no, that's that's completely legit. I... I've played against Scapeshift a few times, and it was Scapeshift without any updates. You know, it's like they, they would just take Strosky's list or Luis's list or whatever and just copy-paste that thing. And I was having, like, kind of an easy time with them. And obviously, like, Vale and Teferi are just, like, the, the only cards that really matter as far as, like, setting yourself up to to beat the other person, you know? So yep. it is it is a lot about that. And then... Yeah, if they're just trying to like jam scapeshift and make zombies and like that's their only game plan, then they just lose to a deputy. But if they have a draw that is just a lot of ramp and a lot of field of the deads, then it's a little trickier. Yep, you play the matchup a little slower. And I, I do think hero is harder for the scapeshift decks than Esper Control. And that's what a lot of people were positing as an answer to scapeshift for a while. That I don't buy whatsoever. I just don't think four rats actually matter whatsoever. No, it doesn't. You can just slow play around it. So I think there's a lot of misinformation about Scapeshift. I think it's just on another level right now. We'll have to see if this tournament proves me correct. All right. I'm eagerly awaiting your fandom debut. Well, you have to tune in, Gerald, at twitch.tv slash BrianGMTG to watch. Yeah, I will. I'll be there. Don't worry about it. Nice. Anyway, Barcelona Mythic Championship 4 happened last weekend. I was there. I went 2-1 in my draft. Crushed it. And then 0-4 in Modern. Didn't crush it. No, did not crush it. I played Jund. And if you listened to the podcast last week or read my article last week on SCG, I actually got a lot of things wrong leading up to this PT. I knew that Hogak was going to be out in force. I imagined that rather than every single big team playing the deck, that there would be some amount of teams or at least, you know, grinders, whatever, who looked to Azorius Control, played like some main deck rest in pieces, maybe went back to Terminus. And I expected that deck to kind of have a field day. And that sort of guided how I built my Jun deck and expected, you know, the, the metagame of the tournament to shake out and everything. And all that stuff happened to be wrong. So uh, Max punished. Yeah, I I think that's the ripple effect where things really spiraled out of control for you is 
Azorius control just absolutely getting dumpstered one more time. 46.8% win rate. We're mostly going to be referencing Frank Karsten's numbers on this podcast. He wrote an official article over on the mothership detailing the win rates of the various archetypes. But there's also a spikes post, which we find interesting, though. I mean, maybe it's not, it doesn't mirrors Frank's numbers exactly. So we're a little concerned about the veracity of the data presented, or at least the way it's presented. We don't understand it quite well enough to have it be our de facto source, but it's a really nice write-up. It's by user, it looks like Falafel, something along those lines. If you go over to our spikes, you can check out the post we're talking about. It's well upvoted and deservedly so. It's a nice piece of data analysis. Uh, But one of the really shining things about that particular analysis of Azorius control is the the difference in day one versus day two win percentage. Not that day one was spectacular for Azorius control, 47.5%. When it came to day two and the field congealed a little bit into a lot of Hogak action, 38.1% win rate for Azorius control. Not the stuff you want to see at the MC. No, but like people just played old Azorius lists. Bad lists. You I'm know? with you. And they they did not respect Hogak. Like it, it actually came like full circle for me where I had some Nile spell bombs main and they were fine. It allowed me to steal game one from some Hogak people. But given how I thought things were gonna play out, spell bomb did not seem all that necessary. And I respected Hogak. I had three ley lines and three graph diggers cages in my sideboard, you know, like I had a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I only played against it once out of the four rounds, maybe because I was losing. But yeah, I just expected people to be a little bit more prepared. And I guess the people that were willing to play Hogak and had like the main deck ley lines and stuff like they were ready for it because they had already realized that it was a great deck, right? Like that's why they were going to play it. And they were super concerned about mirror matches. And then everyone else just seemed like they're kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like I'll, I'll just beat it with my tireless trackers or whatever. And that's that's not how things work. Well, I think I have to push back to some extent about this being an unprepared field. Because can you really say that the field is unprepared for the graveyard deck when there was an average of two Leyline of the Voids per tournament participant in this field? Like there was a preposterous number of Leyline of the Void. And I mean, go back to like the last modern MC when Phoenix was the main concern the most played card was Surgical Extraction. And Surgical Extraction is kind of soft graveyard hate. You use it as a hedge in game one where you go, okay, I hope I can get some other utility in other places. Leyline of the Void is about as hard targeting as you can get. You were saying there is no room for error. I need to shut down this deck before it even gets access to its first turn and deny it from interacting with the graveyard. Yeah, but 98 of those people playing four Leylines were playing Hogak. That's true, and that still only accounts for a very small percentage of the ley lines. I mean, there was ley lines in Jund, there was ley lines in Humans, ley lines in Tron are now starting to become commonplace. There were ley lines all over the place in this tournament. Yeah, but all so all of those decks can play them, right? And like, is it Phoenix, Eldrazi, Tron, Humans, Jund, Tron, Urza, and Dredge? could all play Leyline, and a lot of them did, but no one did anything to fight it in game one, and very few people had stuff past the Leylines. Yeah, I think it was something like 92 Leylines in the main deck or something like that. 
Right. And so eight of those were from Jun decks that I saw. Like I went through all of the deck lists from the MC. There were two players that presumably worked together that had four ley lines in their main deck and their decks were very similar. So that is wild. That's a, a little step further than I think that you should go when you're picking a deck for an MC where it's like, no deck in modern can realistically be more than like 20, 25% of the metagame and main decking four ley lines. I mean, I guess like you're getting some points against, is it Phoenix? And there are some dredge decks out there and stuff, but like John kind of needs all of its cards. Mm -hmm. And I guess you have open deck lists. So it's like, Oh, I'm playing against burn. I guess I can save this to discard to Liliana or whatever. Like you, you get small things that way, but like, Against decks like Humans, Eldrazi, Tron, Blue Eye Control, even Is It Phoenix, I didn't feel like I could just have a dead card in my deck, you know? So I, I tried to just build like a normal Jund main deck and then really hammer them after board. But realistically, I, I probably should have just played a different deck. If you do it all over again, what do you play? Do you just play Hogak? I don't think so. Not if I know that there are going to be people playing like main deck ley lines in Hogak and stuff. It's just, it, it's too much nonsense. I think... I would play blue white control. That would probably be at the top of my list and you know, make sure to have like rest in peace main deck because that card is actually fine in blue white control. And you have, you know, like Jace the mind sculptor and a bunch of different card advantage things. Other than that, I could see playing Urza because that deck had a good win rate and you get to play a lot of graveyard hate main deck and Phoenix. I have liked how I've rebuilt the deck, like going into the MC because of the presence of Hogak. I thought that, Phoenix was just not playable anymore. And there were two cards, Set Adrift and Vapor Snag, that people played at the MC that I think fixed a lot of problems. So your contention is that this format is redeemable? Is, is that what you're going with? Are you saying like there's space for people to adapt successfully to Hogak and make it so it's not the best deck in the format? So people can adapt, but it's not... A, a thing that you should have to do, right? Like this, this is very similar to dredge in 2008 or whatever, mm. where you needed four ley lines and three crypts in your sideboard to even have a chance. And you're almost certainly going to lose game one. You know, that is, that is basically what this is. And I think a lot of it is now like, not should I play Jund and then sideboard, six or seven hate cards or play humans and sideboard six or seven hate cards. It's I need to find a deck that actually deals with this in game one. And there's not a lot of things that actually do that very well. Right. About all I'm coming up with is Urza. Urza has some cards that are functional in game ones that allow you to potentially steal. I mean, I think you're still a dog, but I think the entire format is a dog against Hogak in game one, and you're doing your best to make it as tight as possible. Uh, it seems like main deck Grafdigger's Cage and Ensnaring Bridge is a decent way to start addressing the problem. And the win rates bear that out. The most winning deck was, of course, Hogak. If you're going by Frank's analysis, you're looking at a 56.2% win rate, which in a tournament where it's the most played deck and you know people are showing up in some cases with seven or eight graveyard hate pieces and this wasn't really a huge surprise that's a damning win rate i would say and yeah. 
Then you move to Urza with a 55.3% win rate, which is a pretty spectacular win rate in and of itself, given both how new this archetype is and you know how slanted this field really is against certain strategies. Yeah, I think Urza did really well, and it's still one of those decks that is very unrefined. Yeah, I'm right there with you. The default builds have mostly been Grixis up until this point, playing things like Goblin Engineer, Aethergrid, occasionally making an appearance as an important card. One of the things that caught my eye, though, from this MC were there are a few players who played Azorius Urza, and they leaned a bit more on Planeswalkers, starting to add Teferi Time Raveler and Karn the Great Creator to the deck, which I think is an interesting little wrinkle. I like Teferi a lot. I don't like Karn. I'm completely fine removing Goblin Engineer. The one thing that I don't like about dipping outside of black is the fact that you can't really play Nile Spellbomb anymore. And granted, that card isn't like incredible against Hogak, and a lot of the time you just have to pop it without spending black anyway. But it's just such a nice value card that does a lot for your engine and like making your your words a lot better and stuff like that, that I, I think you kind of need to play it, but I could be wrong about that. Interesting. Well, some players certainly differed and I'm not going to present myself as a Urza expert. I've certainly followed the deck with a lot of interest. I've thought about it, but I honestly haven't sleeved up Urza at any point thus far in the modern format. I am looking forward to the chance to, although probably playing Hogak this weekend at my MCQ. Smart. Yeah, I think I don't want to go through this period of magic saying I never registered Hogak for a tournament. That seems like it would be a very large mistake. So we're going to get that off the bucket list this weekend. Good. I like it. I have I have some thoughts on what is the best version of this deck. If okay, you want to sure, talk about it. I don't know where you are right now. Yeah, absolutely. Basically started with the Channel Fireball list and took it from there and have been doing very small tweaks, mostly respecting the work that they did. But go ahead and give me your take on it. I think Alter is bad. Okay. I think Hedron Crab is very good. And I think Force of Vigor is very good. Okay. And I think that you're not supposed to main deck ley lines in a field where you don't have open deck lists. We mostly agree. I agree on force. That's in my sideboard presently. I have Hedron Crab, like I said, started with the CFB list. You're going to have to sell me on Alter is bad. Why do you feel that way? It just doesn't do anything unless you've already accomplished what your deck is trying to do. So what do you want as an alternative? I guess that's the question. What are you doing instead of Alter? I would be fine with playing a 19th land. I would be fine with maybe playing a Dryad Arbor if your Hedron Crab mana base can manage that. I like two or three removal spells main deck. Like I'd be fine with a couple trophies and, and a push or two. And I don't really like anything else. Like Lotleth troll might be fine as like a one or a two of, but mm-hmm. I'm not very excited about it. I'm not very excited about crypt breaker. You know, yet you, you could play main deck ley lines and just try and mize if, you know, you still have some slots lo- open or whatever, but I mean, realistically, the other stuff doesn't matter all that much because you're still just like mulliganing aggressively for the other cards that are in your deck, you know? So I I think adding a land just makes it so you get to keep a wider spread of hands. You know, like what if you you like mull the six and your hand is good, but you only have one land. And I think with like 18 lands, that kind of makes it pretty likely to happen, you know? 19th land is an option I hadn't considered. And I have to say when you're just playing the very, very clear 
best broken deck. I understand wanting to make sure you cast your spells as often as possible. I think having a sacrifice outlet in that spot was the main thing I was leaning on. So I was either going to play Lotlith Troll or Alter. I liked the fact that Alter could win through Ensnaring Bridge if we believe Urza is like good against these decks. Just have trophy instead. I do have a trophy in the main deck. I, I have a very lazy 1-1-1 one, one, one split on removal right now of Lightning Axe Fatal Push trophy. Uh, I'll have to think about if I want to go a little bit harder on trophy. Because you're right, I do think having main deck outs to uh, artifacts and enchantments makes a lot of sense at this point. Yeah, uh, I, I would play two trophies for sure. And then probably another removal spell or two for thing in the eyes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that all seems reasonable to me. You're more of a streamlined. You don't want the flashy cards. I get that. We'll have to see if I go that route or if the altars stay. I mean, I already bought them, Jerry. I don't want to lose value having purchased altars already. Dude, I'll give you the $5 back. (laughs) Great. As long as I'm getting the $5 back, then you can talk me into another card. Appreciate it. I'll I'll buy the altars off of you. Awesome. Buy listening to Jerry. For 100% return. Get paid. I don't know. I just don't want you to play bad cards. I can no longer MCQ, and I'm a little disappointed about this, but I'm going to, to GP Vegas now. That'll be fun. Do you intend on playing the main event at GP Vegas? I don't know. I mean, when when you're trying to sell me on the idea of like being on the right side of history or whatever, it's like I played Eldrazi that entire season, and it was great. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I had an excellent time, and... I don't really want to miss out on the Hogak action. Like I've, I right. played it online a lot, you know, but it's not the same as playing it in a big tournament. No, I agree with you. There's something special about uh, having your shot with the broken deck at the big event. Granted, MCQ is a little bit smaller stakes, but yeah, I could see going to Vegas and having your kicks with Hogak. Uh, that does beat the deadline, right? I, I think, I guess we'll talk about this quickly because it feels a little disingenuous not to. Next ban announcement is going to come August 26th. Most everyone seems to think it's a certainty that this card goes, which is weird because we don't usually get to this kind of place. And there's often dissenting voices. A lot of the times, honestly, it's us. Like people were doing this about Phoenix a few months ago, talking to ban Faithless Looting. And you and I were sitting here saying, no, this is just another deck that can be adapted to. There's no reason to go this far. And we were basically arguing against bands. And I think probably for the first time ever, this whole Hogak cycle, I have been very pro band. Do you also feel the same way presently? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I do. I, I don't know how not to, quite frankly. Like, And like I've said probably a dozen times now, I don't blame anyone for pushing this card this far. And I certainly don't blame anyone for banning Bridge from Below as opposed to Hogak because that's what everyone on the planet wanted to do. And if you want to be revisionist about it, you're just lying. Like every single person thought banning Bridge would be effective enough to restore the format to balance, maybe leave Hogak a fringe player, but not still leave it a dominant deck. We were all wrong. It happens. You make mistakes. We talked through this last week about how probably the ban of bridge actually made Hogak a better deck, which is a really scary place to be. As soon as it didn't have to participate in the arms race against the mirror, it was able to build with a little bit more consistency and resiliency. And that is certainly playing out in practice, but the cards just, it's too good. It's way too good. It's free. It's silly. If it's free, it's me. I don't think this card has many days left in the format. 
Yeah, it's pretty dumb. I mean, you could even look at something like ban looting, but there are already lists showing up uh, in in the five O's for Magic Online that just don't even play red. Absolutely, so. it's totally reasonable to just be like a Sultai deck and have Hedron Crab and Seder Wayfinder, and I think your deck is probably fine again. Maybe it's not absolutely busted, but still tier one. Stitcher Supplier into Seder Wayfinder does a damn good job of mm-hmm. both fueling Hogak and finding it if it's not already in your hand. So yeah, you don't need looting. Like, yes, it, again, it makes the deck better, but like turn two eight eight is really dumb. So you should probably just remove that from the format. I think that is the safe call and it is what I anticipate happening, but we've got a month left of this format. So it's on us to figure out what to do here. Uh, it sounds like both of us are enticed by Hogak presently, but we can't leave it at that. We have to give people the option to play against Hogak. Where do you start if you're not going to be a Hogak believer for the, your next modern tournament? Blue, white control, play Terminus, play Rest in Peace. Is it really that easy, Jerry? Because this deck got yes. trounced. It got absolutely trounced. Every time I buy into blue, white control, something happens that makes me look like a fool. We were both on board with this deck going into this MC. And it gets obliterated. And I know people played main deck rest in peace and still got obliterated. I don't think it's that easy. Very few people played main deck rest in peace. I went through all of the deck lists and all of the deck lists were like a bunch of Narsets and like Teferi Hero of Dominaria. Very few Terminuses, very few main deck rest in pieces. Like there, there were a lot of lists that had two main deck surgicals. There was one by a player I whose name I knew but cannot recall now who had like two surgicals and a relic. And it's like, oh yeah, good job. You know, like (laughs) you you put the extra graveyard eight card in, but seriously, go back, look at the deck list. They're all bad. Okay. If every single version of the deck was bad, then I really can't judge it based on that. Uh, If there, you believe there is a world where you can four terminus three rest in peace main any further. Do we need even more than that? Are we getting more options from the sideboard? Leyline of the Void. Are you ever considering Leyline of the Void? No, no. I mean, you can play the Celestial Purges and stuff. Mm-hmm. You can play more Graveyard Hate if you want to. Like, I would probably go with Relic or whatever. Obviously, be careful about presenting like a Rest in Peace and a Relic because of Force of Vigor. That right. is certainly a thing that uh, that happens now. So doesn't seem that hard to me. Like, Path to Exile on your 8-8 is already a thing that slows them down dramatically. And there are not very many decks in the format that play Path. And Blue White Control with Terminus, they don't have very many sacrifice outlets now. So I guess you're going to be like slightly worse off against the older versions, but even those versions don't play very many altars. So you might have to like kill their carrion feeder first before you actually Terminus them. And maybe they can like leave some blood gas in the graveyard or whatever, but like Timely Reinforcements cleans up a lot of that stuff. So I don't know. I think I think that Blue White has the tools to actually be able to win the matchup in game one, whereas most decks don't. Uh, Tron is probably the next one with like all of their worm coils and relics and whatnot. We'll get to Tron in two seconds. I definitely do want to talk about Tron. Of course, that won the SCG event in the hands of friend of the podcast, Dominic Harvey. Props to Dom Dom's for a good. nice win there. Absolutely. Dom is also, Dom is choosing good decks at this point too, which is the big thing I want to point out. 
because he had some, I'll say me-esque flirtations with some really, really poor deck choices over the course of the last season. He likes to innovate and props. I mean, someone's got to try out these new archetypes and figure out if they have legs. I think it caught up with him at some points in last season. Now he's just playing good decks and winning everything. So yeah. good luck beating Dom now. Yeah, I was going to say, don't ban Hogak, ban Dom. Yeah, that's a good idea. Real quick, going back to Blue Eye Control, what are you doing with your Snapcaster Mages when you're playing main deck Rest in Peace? Do you have to trim them? Are you just just done with Snapcaster Mage? What's the play there? You can play two. Okay. Just live with it. Times you Rest in Peace, so be it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have Rest in Peace... If you drew Rest in Peace and it's in a matchup where you would presumably want to cast the Rest in Peace, I assume it's like Jund, Is it Phoenix, Hogak, maybe uh, Urza. And at that point, you're fine being down a Snapcaster Mage. That's not really how you're going to win games in those matchups anyway. Like you're going to have to stick a Planeswalker or whatever eventually. So I think that is fine. Try and get your value first. Cool. You're not talking me into blue-white control for any recent tournament. I'm, I'm just going to say that right now. I refuse to do this for the time being. Someone's going to have to show me this is a viable approach, and then I will start paying attention. Right now, I'm too scared. I'm playing Hogak. But we talked about Tron. And I, I think Tron does bear some mention. But it's interesting. If you look at most of the data I've seen presented, again, referring to like this Spikes article, and I, I've seen some other metagame breakdowns floating around that aren't quite as in-depth. but I believe most of them show Tron to have a pretty miserable Hogak matchup, actually, despite the fact that we're sitting here saying it should have good game ones. According to Reddit, Hogak went 17 and 19 against Tron. Okay, now I saw something somewhere else, and I don't I don't have a site for you, but it put Tron's win rate much lower against Hogak. I don't know which one is accurate. If that's the win rate, that sounds promising, which is weird to say because that's not very good. That's just a small edge over the Hogak decks, but you can't do much better than a small edge in this format, I don't think. Well, Eldrazi Tron went 32 and 43 for a 42.7% win percentage, according to the Reddit data. So mm-hmm. that matchup is worse, which I, I think you kind of have to understand when you're signing up to play Eldrazi Tron and you're not like main deck and relic or anything, you have so many dead cards. So I, I don't think Eldrazi Tron is a, a good choice right now. I'm right there with you. Just real quick, I'll, I'll read through these matchups as they're presented. Again, not 100% sure how accurate this is, but it seems to be reasonably close. As far as bad matchups for Hogak, humans, 44% win rate is about as bad as it gets. And I've seen that matchup play out a bunch, even with the old Bridge from Below versions. Humans definitely has legs in that matchup. I don't know if it's staunchly in their favor, but they they can play through a lot, especially if they go as far as Leyline of the Void in games two and three. Tron, Hogak only has a 47.2 win percentage there. And then against Urza, 45.2. All of these sample sizes, pretty small. I wouldn't take a huge amount away from them. Yeah, I mean, in, in the case of... Urza, it's like a 30-game set. Tron's a 40-game set. Eldrazi Tron is 75. Mm. Humans is like 60. Like, th- these are reasonable sample sizes, I reasonable. think. And also, it just like backs up things that I thought already were like Urza would be favored, humans would be a slight favorite, Eldrazi Tron would get smushed, etc. Right. Speaking of getting smushed, blue-white control, 68.8% win percentage for Hogak against blue-white control. So I think that pretty well supports your idea that those decks were built poorly. 
You know what's not good against Hogex? Supreme Verdict. Mm. It's just not good. Or Celestial Colonnade. I saw many, many yeah. hilarious pictures of like tap Celestial Colonnade. Opponent has 16 power in play or something preposterous. Obviously. Beautiful. And probably magic. like no good chance to like surgical them either. <laughs> right, right. And obviously, yeah, if you're playing rest in peace, like sometimes that can happen too. You know, where they just kill you before you even rest in peace them, which is stupid, I might add. But. Yeah, that's why I mentioned Leyland of the Void. I mean, I think on the draw, you have some problems where they will many, many times just present a almost insurmountable battlefield. And you're just like, well, I hope Terminus is this top card. Otherwise, I'm pretty much dead. Well, you do always have that out. And uh, Spell Snare is kind of gas. You can also just like path or turn one thing on upkeep, which is obviously not ideal. But like if you are trying to not get gacked on turn two, like that is the gotta way to do, do it. it. Yeah, got to do it. Or you can just path or gag to you. That works. But yeah, you have options. The humans, the humans numbers, I don't really like. I don't know. From from playing that matchup from the human side, it felt like, oh, you know, I have deputy detention and, and uh, reflector mage and like semantis riders and stuff. But like if they ever have a turn two eight eight, you are so far behind unless you had noble on turn one. So I th- I think the the fail case for humans is just too high. I think the problem is though most decks would be in the exact same position. It's very hard to catch back up against Hogak when it's doing its thing. And that's why you see this focus on Leyline of the Void. If it ever gets to do anything, it is almost impossible to recoup advantage and you have to shut them down from turn zero to have a chance. Yeah. The is it Phoenix numbers are interesting. 47 and 44 for a 51.6% win rate for Hogak, which I think is pretty low considering that the Phoenix decks hadn't even really adapted at this point. Like there were two people really in the tournament that I think did a good job of preparing their Phoenix deck for Hogak, and that's Alan Wu and Pascal Viren. And what was and unique about split- their list? Pascal had two set drifts main instead of the magmatic sinkholes and Alan Wu was sideboarding vapor snags. Mm-hmm. I also heard that Alan Wu did not play Leyline because the, he actively did not want his Hogak opponents to bring in enchantment removal against his Aria of flames. Wow. That's really interesting with open deck lists. A lot of things change, right? And if you yes. show a Leyline, then they have to account for it. Alan just wanting to protect the Aria. Interesting stuff. Which is which is weird to me. I'm not sure if if those plans actually mesh well together where you're trying to like snag their Hogak, but also kill them with Aria. You know, maybe it is just about buying time and Aria is your best win condition because they have a bunch of like pushes or whatever. But I feel like snag is a better plan if you're just on the Phoenix plus Bolt you plan. So I don't know. It it requires a little bit of extra gaming on my end to actually figure things out. But regardless, Phoenix was close to a coin flip against Hogak, even though they didn't really have anything special. And I think that there are a lot of ways that you can tune Phoenix to actually have more fight against them. Such as? The, the set of drifts, man. Like, I think that, they're it's huge. that simple. Just go that far. And then you think you, you have a reasonable matchup. Make your cards be able to interact with eight eights, and instead of just like scooping on turn two, like you do a lot of the time, like now you actually have game. So this is now multiple tier one decks that you're proposing half a way of accounting for Hogak. As we head into these next big modern tournaments, do you see 
Hogak maybe being put in check and then it'll bring into question this whole, you know, almost ban premonition we're currently holding about the deck. Is there is there a possibility this deck gets saved at the buzzer by good adaptations if, from other decks? No, no, God, no. If every single deck in the format has to change 10 cards it, to specifically target this deck in order for it to, you know, not even dominate to just like get down to like, you know, a 50%. 40 to 50% win rate. Yeah. That's stupid. That that should not be an ask that the format places on you. Okay. I'm with you. I'm playing devil's advocate for the most part. I know. I know. I, I just want to see like, because people are making this argument right now that the format should have some time to shake itself out. I, I don't think many people are making it. I have heard it occasionally and people suggesting that maybe this MC was unprepared for Hogak. And you said something even along those lines as far as deck construction went and that we're overreacting. And I just think it's important to do our due diligence because we have to be fair. Like This podcast will do a lot to shape public perception. And if we go on record saying this, then a lot of other people are going to come on board with that same stance. So I think we have to show that we're considering all sides of the argument and we're not just like, this card's stupid, get rid of it. Well, I, I hope I hope that people come around to our opinions because we put forth, you know, valid hypotheses, right? Right, right. And I, I think we have done so here. Yeah, I, I, so I don't, so I, my overarching point is that Hogak is very good. Something from, from the deck should be banned because it has a very high win rate. It does bad things to the format. And it like when it does its thing, like makes a turn to eight, eight, and that's not even counting for like, you know, turn to eight, eight plus attack you with two venge vines. Right. Mm-hmm. It is, it's really dumb. And there's basically like not a lot of counterplay because they just have, 10 power on the battlefield on turn two or whatever, and you have a land. So between all of these things, I I think the deck is just going to remain feeling pretty broken. And there are things that basically all of the decks can do in order to make themselves a little bit better against it. But it makes those decks like worse against everything else too. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily what you would normally do. But yeah, I think things will maybe be more in line the more people actually add four different cards to their main deck that are specifically there for Hogak. But I don't think that that necessarily makes a good format. Right there with you. So it feels like we have discussed the majority of these top archetypes thus far, with the exception of one, and that's the one you played, Jund. Now, numbers on Jund... I'd describe them as squarely medium. There's actually quite a bit of contrast in the numbers from Spikes and Frank's numbers. Frank's numbers suggest a 52.3% win rate, whereas the numbers from Spike uh, have it much lower, I believe something like 40, 46.7% win rate. It's a pretty big discrepancy and one we can't yeah. really account for. So we're not quite sure where things lied. You said you were pretty unhappy with the deck. If you go to the Grand Prix that occurred at the same time as the MC, it was a Jund mirror in the finals of that MC. Yeah, I, I don't know. Where does Jund stand? What do you make of the all Jund finals going on in the hall right next door? I wonder if the Reddit numbers differ because it's counting like the top eight matches played. 
I, I would expect those numbers to change a lot more, but that's something that can possibly make the numbers different. Possibly. And there were two Jun decks in the top eight. The only de- the only deck to have two copies in the top eight, by the way. And you're talking yeah. about it being a poor choice. It dominates the GP, puts the only multiple copies into the top eight. And you're like, this deck was not the correct call. Well, my version was not the correct call. The, okay. That Jun deck also, the two Jun decks in top eight got beat by Tron twice, which was just... Like, yep. can, can, can you imagine like a more gifted top eight for you playing Tron and you just fight Jun Jund? It's yeah. incredible. Great spot to be in for sure. And apparently Jund went six and seven against Tron, according to the Reddit data, which just blows my mind because incredible. I know that my win, my win rate against Tron, even with hate cards is like sub 10%. Right. Yeah. You said you were basically scooping the matchup and uh, I, I think that. Was what everyone expected, but there you see some decent numbers for Jun against Tron. Yeah, my version was probably good for a different field. And some of the versions played more pushes, fewer lightning bolts. I don't really like that angle because that makes you feel more like a control deck than like this aggro control deck that I think that Jund is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And push kills thing in the ice with with like four Liliana's and Ren and Six to tag team with Lightning Bolt, I thought I had more than enough ways to kill Thing in the Ice. So I'm not sure how I really feel about that. The four Blood Braids were not super relevant. So I could see going lower on those, although it is your best card against Azorius control. So if you are expecting a lot of blue-white control decks for some reason, you should be playing a lot of that card. I also think it's like, you know, good against Tron for whatever that's worth, but definitely bad against like Hogak and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I guess the things that I would change knowing what I know now are playing some main deck surgicals and not really worrying too much about the blue white control matchup and just trying to have like, you know, some some zero mana cards to interact with Hogak. Zero mana cards, certainly the order of the day. I think you bring up a good point here, though, is that too often we take these numbers as hard truths, like this is what the matchup is. But you bring up the excellent point that there's so much variation in how you can build these decks, especially the more mid-range controlling decks like Jund and Blue-White Control. But even when you're going to things like Hogak, I mean, there are pretty vast differences between various Hogak builds. There were Altar builds, there were Hedron Crab and sideboards. Builds. Absolutely, sideboards as well. All this stuff matters, and these numbers are less apt to present truths. So maybe that kind of poops on my hatred of Azorius control one more time, where this 46% win rate we're seeing doesn't necessarily tell the entire picture. And actually I'm looking at the spikes numbers right now and it's 40% in the spikes numbers. So it's even worse. Yeah. But maybe they don't tell quite the whole picture. Maybe it's not about the archetype as a whole. It's about the, versions of this deck that showed up to the MC. And that's what we should be looking at. And maybe not abandoning these abandoning these archetypes, but thinking about how we can refine them and make them better. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the tournament next week is not going to be a replay of the MC, right? If I could go back and do the MC over again, I would just change cards, you know, within my archetype or whatever. But going forward... I don't think it is correct to expect everyone else to keep their decks the same. I do think that there's going to be 
a pretty high non-zero amount of people who just copy decks from the MC, like decks that were successful and everything. And that's completely fine uh, if, if that's what you want to do. But if you want to get ahead of people, I think you take something that looks promising and you have an idea for how to make it a little bit stronger in it, in its weak spots and you run with that. And I think that that's just like the best way to get ahead for the next tournament. No, I'm right there with you. I agree. Uh, innovation will always be rewarded, especially in modern, even where it seems like things are kind of locked up in Hogak's favor. There's still moves to make, to be sure. And we'll have to see if those moves can carry the day in this next three to four weeks of tournaments, which are going to be a lost era of magic. I think I think it'll be the only time this format really gets played again before things change one more time feels like we keep saying that about modern over the last few months but it's true it's been <laughs> a time of drastic drastic upheaval yeah well it, it, it also makes things interesting right where a lot of people think that a ban is looming so for the next few weeks of tournaments uh there's the grand prix in minneapolis grand prix in las vegas it's mcq season there are a decent amount of modern tournaments within the next month before the next BNR list, but with a potential ban looming, how many people are actually going to pick up these Hogak cards? You know, like, yeah, how is that going to influence things? They've gotten a lot cheaper for what it's worth because I bought mine this week thinking I was going to play the deck. Uh, Hogaks themselves were actually very cheap. The support cards still holding a lot of their value, but I had a lot of them already, so it wasn't quite as bad. And that's not normally what you would expect to happen, right? right? It's like this deck puts up a bunch of busted numbers, you know, like look at Ren and Six, right? Like Ren and Six is $95 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's consistently been doing pretty well. But you would expect Hogak to be like the $20 card, like when MH1 first dropped, right? Right. Well, I but think yeah, it went now, as high as $30 at one point. And then I remember being at the SCG event, which was pretty much slated to be the last event before the bans, which ultimately banned Bridge from Below, and dealers were paying $3 for Hogax. And you can't really fault them for doing so because everyone I saw was walking around the hall asking dealers how much for Hogax because people just wanted to get rid of the card with the expectation it was going to hit the bench. Right. I guess it's $8 and has gone up a little bit. Yeah, it looks like it was like 25 at its peak. And you know, started like at $2 or whatever. So right. the swings have been real with this card. Oh, huge swings, huge swings for the GAC. Oh man. So yeah, I don't know. Like how, how many people are going to want to buy into this deck? Like obviously you can get Hogax pretty cheap, but other stuff in the deck like Gravecrawler has gone up by a significant amount. So uh, Gravecrawler strikes me as a card that I don't mind having in my collection and i feel that way about several of these cards blood gas certainly don't mind holding a bunch of those vengevine eh, we'll see i mean vengevine has shown up in the past uh it occasionally rears its head i think most of it is a safe buy it's just you're gonna get hosed on the hogax at some point and also i'll say that hogax has potential in legacy quite frankly the card is too powerful to just be completely ignored we'll have to see if that bears out but i know people are experimenting with it yeah, there are a few different versions that have popped up in Legacy already. But yeah, I mean, like, you're talking about, like, expanding your portfolio or whatever. But what is the psychological effect on players who 
can't just afford to like buy cards and then sit on them. Oh know? yeah, it's it's bad. It's absolutely bad. And that's the reason why we're not routinely seeing wholesale modern changes, I think. You could make a lot of arguments that you know, a few weeks ago, I went off about how I think the format should get back to its turn four roots and really just obliterate a lot of cards which are problematic under those constraints. Things like Gristlebrand and Simeon Spirit Guide and Mox Opal, a host of other ridiculous cards that are just a little bit too strong. I would start over and just get rid of all of them if that's really what we want the format to be. But there's a very good reason for not doing that. And that's modern is very popular. And you can't expect your consumer base to bear that kind of cost. So I, I don't want to sound unsympathetic to that point of view. I think it's a very valid one. And I can totally understand not wanting to buy into a deck that's going to get blown up sometime soon. Yeah. And I mean, that that just means that the people who are going to play Hogak are like super, super enfranchised or they happen to have all the cards already. You know, because maybe they played Dredge or whatever and they had a bunch of the cards. But you're going to see very few people like picking it up right now to play in MCQs, I think. So even going forward, I don't think that this is going to be like 20% of the metagame. Well, I will report back after playing my MCQ this weekend. I actually have an MCQ next weekend as well. So I'll be down in the trenches for the next couple of weeks with some real data to bring back to the Arena Deckless podcast. Good. So this one is in Portland. Correct. Headed down and, to Portland. And then where's the where's where's the next one? Bellevue, five minutes from my house, baby. Nice. Okay. Uh oh yeah, I'll try and come hang out for that one. Beautiful. Yeah, you are now gifted a entrance into the next MC by virtue of your top four finish in the team series, right? L O L. What are you talking about? Yes. You've been a huge contributor to your team, bringing them countless points throughout the season, right? I have effectively tied for dead last in my last five, maybe six Pro Tours slash MCs. I'm sure they appreciate you in spirit, regardless, Gerald, whether you're bringing the pro points to the table or not. uh, I'm sure you're a calming and benevolent presence for the team. I don't know. The year before we were doing okay because I got finals in a PT and it was basically all downhill from there. But there was some pro tour where I dropped it like four and six and Strosky tried to yell at me and it was just like, dude, I got second in the tournament. Leave me alone. You know, like I've <laughs> I've done enough. All right. And then for this year, uh, I got dead last in every tournament. And I was I like I said, I two won my draft. I started 03 in modern and I went around to each of my teammates and I said permission to drop it two and four. And permission was granted. No. No, oh, they okay. made me stay in and they made me stay in and I I lost to Ryuji who is uh, a friend of Kenji Sumura's who both stayed at my house for the MOCS when that was going on and that was the first time I met Ryuji he's a great dude and we had a lot of fun in our match uh but he just dismantled me utterly dismantled me with Okak. Okay. So you lost fair and square. Is there like a play component to you being in the top four of this team series? You'll have to forgive me for knowing absolutely nothing about the present state of OP. I don't understand any of the programs that exist right now. Okay, so so check this out. When I went around asking for permission to drop a two and four, I thought we had another tournament left on the team series. Okay. To determine like who the actual finalists were that were going to go play in whatever tournament. So I was like, look, 
you know, guys, I promise I'll try really hard for the next one, you know, but just if, let me if drop, they told, please. Yeah. If they would have told me that this was the last one, I would have been like, okay, yeah, I have to stick it out. Right. Obviously I'm not going to just try and give up like right in front of the finish line. That's just kind of ridiculous, but right. Yeah. I did not even know the current state of OP. Uh, and then I found out like, they're like, Oh yeah. Like we, we made top four and it's like, okay, so what does that, get us like is it it gets me an invite right and they're like yeah you get flight invite and like some money and i was like money really like how much money do i get and then i looked it up for the year before and it's it's four thousand dollars but then i was told that for this year they upped it to five thousand dollars and this is per person per team wow so just a little chunk of change in your pocket there yeah yeah, and uh, you know, this is me again not knowing anything about what is going on with OP. And shout out to my homie Varro, who made the finals of the MC playing Harden Scales, who beat Martin Mueller in top eight, which was the thing that allowed us to clinch top four. Oh wow, is that close, huh? Apparently, yeah. I think I think we did it by a point. I have no idea. This is just stuff that I've heard. But after after his match, we were talking, and he was like, you know, so. I heard that I locked you guys for top four and you get like $5,000. So, you know, if you want to, you know, ship some of that my way or whatever, and it's like, look, man, you, you just went from like winning 10 K to winning 15 K. So we both won $5,000. Right. I think everyone's paid. Yeah. It sounds like everyone won in that situation. Yeah. And he said, fair enough. But I, I thought this weekend was awesome because uh, Varro, is uh, a person who used to tune into my stream, like when I was streaming a lot in 2014. And he he would just say stuff, you know, like, I'll see you soon at like some pro tour or whatever. And I'm just like, yes, man, cool, make it happen. And then, you know, finally he qualified. We started hanging out at these events. He's a really awesome dude. And I think this one was his fifth MC. And the Thursday before the tournament, I'm like chatting with him, catching up majors and Andrew Brown and Dan Musser come up and I was like, oh, do you guys know my friend Varro? He's a hardened scales master, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so he got to meet the the OG game crew, right? And then I talked to Andrew on Sunday and he's just like, hardened scales master, huh? Just like casually getting second in the MC. It's like, yeah, dude, I wasn't lying. Yep. Looks like you were accurate. Hardened scales master indeed. Hardened scales, bad deck. Varro, good player. Well, we all have our vices when it comes to deck selection. Obviously, it worked out well for Varro. But as far as team series, no more games to be played, right? That's the end of it. You are the fourth place finisher. And then first place and second place play each other. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what I've been told. So we don't have to show up and play in anything. Uh, We just get a check at some point or an e-check. Well, that's not so bad. Uh, That's my favorite way to compete in a tournament is just be handed the money right off the bat. So congratulations. Great performance, Gerald. You have earned your top four, and I am proud of you. I mean, thanks. Uh, Cho said that team selection is a skill. It is. And I I agree with that. I mean, basically, I think what y'all should be doing is finding like some plucky youngsters that have a lot of heart, a lot of fire, and they really want it. And I realize that that's all like intangible nonsense. But for me currently, where it's like, I might have a lot of skill, I might have a lot of knowledge, but I'm currently not fired up, you know, as far as like competing in tournaments. Like I still care about figuring out puzzles and, you know, like 
what is an optimal deck to play this week and stuff like that. I, I can't stop caring about that. It's just impossible. But for my own success in the tournaments, like I just, I don't know. I got better stuff to be doing. Well, unfortunately, I think your sentiment is mirrored by many people right now. It's hard to really be invested in the broader tournament magic scene with no goals to fight for, no clarity in OP whatsoever. And I've tried to be a patient soldier and wait. And I've always done so with the belief that something has to be coming. And my faith is starting to waver at this point because here's another MC and we still have no idea about actual anything. And uh, I don't, I don't know what to make of it anymore. And I don't fault people for being concerned at this point. I have always tried to be a naysayer of doom and gloom, but I can't anymore. I just don't have it in me. I, I don't know what's going on. And uh, I don't think anyone does. And I think it's getting to everyone at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's been seven months with basically no announcement as far as organized play and, Richmond is the last MC in the season. We still don't even know what's going on next season. We don't know how people are qualifying for the MPL or any of that nonsense. So yeah, what the hell? I don't get it. What the hell indeed, but we'll still have arena tournaments to play and metagames to figure out. And we'll be here doing that. Hopefully with some reason to do so, there's always the SCG tour. There is the players championship. If y'all want to come join us over there, I'll be there doing coverage. Come say hi to me. We'd love to have all these fantastic players who have focused on professional magic for years and years. Come join us on the SCG tour. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when, when I could force myself to care about a tournament every weekend, I was very, very happy to, to play in those tournaments, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's just, dude, it's just really nice to like be able to play a tournament every weekend and fix the things that you did wrong the week before. Whereas like the the Pro Tours, MCs, whatever. One shot. It's like, yeah, one every three months. And you don't really get a chance to fix the things that you messed up because it's only a one-time thing in that format. So it's it's kind of weird. I, I really liked the, the really old PTQ system, just like right. playing every week, same format. Same people, you know, even changing. in like your neck of the woods, yeah. you knew who you were up against, you know, what's getting popular among groups. Yeah, that was, that'll always be the heyday of magic to me. Uh, there was something special about that form of metagaming that I really loved. Yep. And the SCG tour does a good job replicating that. So, I mean, it, it, if I ever get that fire back again, it's just like, I want to just go out there and like teach these kids a lesson. Like that is probably where I'll end up. It's funny because I, I do like, I very much have that sense of fire inside me right now. Like I, I want to play meaningful magic and prove that I still have it or whatever, but I can't find an outlet to do so. I mean, SCG is not realistic given where we live. If you're up on the West Coast, unfortunately, it's just not something you can really do. And there's no form of larger OP. And every single time I'm like, oh, I'll just do arena stuff. The arena event that matters falls on a date when I'm doing coverage for SCG, so I don't get to play in that tournament. And it just feels like everything is stacked against me. And I love Magic just as much as ever. The games are still great. I'm still having a lot of fun. Even with this weird, broken, modern world we've lived in over the past three months, it's been fun to parse out and, and talk through it and figure out what the it's next steps are. It's a new puzzle. Are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never hate a puzzle. It's just I recognize it may not be the best puzzle and things should change, but I've still enjoyed the process of working through it. 
just give me somewhere where I can do so with some stakes. That's all I want. Please just give it back. Well, hey, in the vein of puzzles and Hogak and modern, I have been told that restriction breeds creativity. Oh, interesting. I don't feel like that is necessarily holding true for this modern <laughs> format, you know, but hey. Yeah, not in this instance. I think that that is a, it's a saying I really do love. I don't want to make light of it. But in this instance, I think it fails. Yeah, which is weird because I, I always held that as truth mm-hmm. in my mind. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of cool. Like it forces me to work within these specific parameters. And now I'm just like, this sucks. Yeah, enough, please. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it. No, I understand. All right. So you're playing Hogak. Yes. You're playing a good version of Hogak. Yes. If I were playing, uh, do do I want to put my claim on blue-white control? I think I'm going to. I think you have to be real sure about your Hogak matchup. I, I know what you're saying in theory makes a lot of sense. Before I'm signing up to play your blue-white deck, I'm going to be damn sure I feel like the Hogak matchup is starting to move in my favor. And just saying rest in peace and terminus, that's not doing the job for me. I understand those cards sound good. Hogak's no, broken, you, though. You I want to see path. it. I want to see it in practice before I buy it. You already have Path. Path is great. I wish there was some way for us to actually practice this matchup that didn't involve spending a bunch of money on Magic Online for cards that I don't want. Right. And also playing Magic Online. Right. Both pretty significant but, downsides. Yeah, but I'm not about to play you on X-Mage or whatever, so. Yeah. We should have someone we trust play this matchup out and report back to us. If if one of our Arena Decklist fans <laughs> wants to do a very scientific series, play like just a quick hundred matches of Jerry's Blue White oh, List yeah. versus Hogak and report back to us with detailed findings, we will send you one Arena Decklist pin for all of your hard work. Enjoy. I would do that. I would actually do that with uh, maybe like four post or four pre and six post board. Okay. That's pretty small. It, it, I don't, I don't care about the numbers. I care about the feel. I care about whether or not the cards are lining up and you know, like it, it actually feels like you have a relatively easy time in the matchup, blah, blah, blah. You know? Okay. The numbers themselves don't matter. Okay, so report back to us. Let us know. Experiment with these blue-white lists versus Hogak. See if you can figure out the secret sauce. Jerry thinks it's Terminus. Rest in peace. Pad the exile to get the job done. See if he's right. Yeah, ping me on Twitter and or in the Discord, I guess, and I will get you two deck lists and you can go to work. Sounds good. And I also hope that no one takes me up on this, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. It's been said now. You can't get away from it. Let me let me clarify, actually. Uh, I would play blue-white in a Grand Prix. In an, an MCQ, I would play Hogak. Uh, explain why. Uh, Grand Prix, I think there would be more tryhards and more Hogak. Okay. What do you make of skill discrepancies? Because I've been thinking about blue-white a lot recently and thinking about when I play blue-white and when I succeed with blue-white. And I know it sounds like I hate blue-white control in modern. I really don't. It's... I've played it a bunch. It's one of my favorite archetypes in basically every format. I want to be playing control if I can. uh, And I do have experience with the deck. And when I am winning with the deck, it often feels like my opponents are playing 
pretty poorly into me. And I posited speaking about Guillaume Mafotapa's list at the MC, his list basically emphasized that to the nth degree by playing every modal spell possible and just letting his opponent walk into mistake after mistake. And I wonder if skill discrepancy starting to close a little bit at the MC level is enough to put some notches against his Aureus control. What do you make of that theory? I agree that your cards are better when your opponents are bad. Mm -hmm. And that most likely makes them worse when your opponents are good. Like from my Jun list playing four Bloodbraid Elves, I feel like the majority of cards in the blue-white deck are pretty bad. Now, if you are playing blue-white and you're playing against a Jund opponent who is not prepared for blue-white and they don't have Bloodbraid Elves, like, yeah, your cards are going to feel pretty good. I don't know that that necessarily means that the Jund player is bad, you know? When you're playing a bunch of Planeswalkers in a format like Modern that is super fast, you are certainly going to lose percentage points by trying to cast things like Narset against people who are reanimating Vengevine on turn two, you know? Your cards are sort of proactive now, but they're also reactive to a slight degree where, you know, like you need your board, your opponent's board to be relatively clear before you can actually get maximum use out out of them. So I don't know. It's, it is weird. I do agree that like planeswalkers in general are just better the worse your opponent is. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that in Azorius control. And I always hesitate to assign too much credit to those kind of skill differentials because they're really hard to measure. And it's also something we want to tell ourselves. Like we go out of our way to tell ourselves, oh, I earned this because I was better than my opponent. Where a lot of times it's just not true. Like we tell that narrative because it feels good to tell that narrative. So I'm always hesitant to go too far in that direction. But I think there may be something to it with this deck. This is why at the end of the day, I always try and figure out what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And then you can justify or not justify, but you can like alter your expected win rate or whatever based on skill level. You know, like if good person with good list playing Jund against good person playing good list of blue white is in Jund's favor 60 40. It's like, okay, like I I hope my other matchups with blue white are good enough to make up for that. But realistically in a tournament, if you're one of the best players in the tournament, you're never going to play a 60 40 matchup against Jund because your opponent is not going to be on your skill level. Right. Right. Uh, So it's like you can have a bunch of 40, 60 matchups, be the best player in the tournament and win very easily. But for like a Grand Prix, I wouldn't or especially like an MC, I would not bank on that, you know? Yeah, right there with you. Yeah. Figure out the truth and then go from there. Do we have a question from the Discord? Of course we do. This week's question comes from Evan Appleton. Who asks, in a recent cast, Jerry mentioned he isn't a math guy, with so many of the best being very good at math, what does he do differently to be as successful as he is? This is a straight up Jerry question. I just get to sit back, relax a little bit. Go to town, Gerald. Well, hold on. First of all, would you consider yourself to be a math guy? No, but I would would put some qualifiers on that. So I stopped, quote unquote, learning math in like 10th grade because I was in accelerated math and had gotten my requirements out of the way and wanted to do as little work as possible in high school because I hated it. 
and basically just found the simplest classes possible and stopped with math. And then I was an English major in college and never took any higher math. So in terms of like classical math training, I know almost nothing. I didn't go further than I don't, I don't, I know some like pre-calc stuff and I'm sure I've forgotten it at this point. Yeah. So definitely not a textbook math guy as far as instinctual math and mental math and that kind of stuff. I'm very, very good and do things very quickly and just generally have an understanding of numbers that feels very innate and not trained. And like my thing always in school, I remember I would get in trouble. I don't know if trouble is the right word. I would get docked because I would just put the answer to a question down and not show my work because I just knew the answer a lot of the time. Right. And and so I don't know really how to answer that question. My instinct is no, I'm not a math guy in the typical sense, but there is some innate understanding of math that I have. So I I think we're the same, which basically means that I lied. Okay. And I knew that I lied when I said that I wasn't a math guy. In high school, for a lot of different reasons, I did not apply myself. And there were some classes or some subjects where I ended up in advanced classes, despite myself not trying. And math was one of them. And I have like a kind of long math background where when I was like, you know, five years old up until when I was like 20, I would go to the farmer's market with my grandparents and help them sell their stuff, which, you know, super young age, having to do a bunch of math as far as like, you know, taking money, giving people their change back, et cetera. Uh, and also just like figuring out, you know, if you bought like 20 things, like how much it costs. And I got very good at that. And I think I was like naturally good at that. Uh, so as far as stuff like algebra, calc, whatever, it, it was a joke to me and I think I was very similar to you where they're just like, all right, here's the answer. Show your work. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not doing that. You know, mm. <laughs> like why would I have to show my work when I have the answer? It's just so stupid, but right. Just, just trust me. This one's right. Yeah. But I was never like in love with math. I never pursued math. I think basically the same as Brian. Once I could just be done with it, I was done with it, you know? And That's kind of what I mean when I say I'm not a math guy. And also, I don't just like bow to the the math gods or whatever as far as things in magic are concerned, because there is way more at play than just numbers. And not, you know, five, ten minutes ago, we were talking about finding the truth, the true matchup. I care about that. You can look at uh, the numbers from this last MC that, you know, Brian and I said multiple times are just, they're not real. They, they are numbers. They might give you some idea, but they are just inherently flawed in so many different ways. And I think true math can't lie. It just can't. Numbers are numbers. Numbers are the truth. But in a game like Magic with so many variables, all the math is a lie. So I don't lean on it to the degree of someone like Ross Merriam. I think like he is, he's a, a popular choice for, you know, when people think of math or like Frank Karsten, right? Like Frank does like all of this nonsense related to math, which I just think is like amusing, but also kind of garbage in the, the grand scope of magic. So this is a controversial stance you're taking right now. And I think while I 
am inclined not to go in that direction. I do respect the power of math and I respect it even in imperfect situations, like going to something like poker and game theory, optimal play and basically situations which shouldn't have a true answer are now considered somewhat solved. And I think there's something to that. And by just disqualifying all math, maybe we're missing on some analysis of range that would be useful. And it frustrates me at times that I don't have a math background to lean into things. And often I'll go to someone and be like, look, I feel this thing. Is there a way for you to somehow represent this with some math to check what I'm saying? Because I think it's good to have feedback mechanisms, no matter how much you trust yourself. And it would benefit me, I think, to have more math feedback mechanisms in my repertoire so I could occasionally check some things out and make sure, like I said, we're all feeding into our own illusions sometimes, and we want to be right very badly, and oftentimes we'll allow ourselves to work things in our favor if we're not careful. So there's two things I like to do about that. One, be very careful to check my work. And I think math would just be another way for me to check my work. That's how I would use math if I had a greater background in it. But I don't feel like I'm disadvantaged because I don't have it. No, check this out. Why Why would I want to check my work if I already know the answer? We've been through this. We went through this in high school with our uh, teachers, Brian. I don't want to ever say my teachers were right. I mean, there it was really obvious, right? Like I was certain about the answers. In magic, like you said, nothing is really obvious. Things are much more nebulous. You're dealing much more with ranges. And in those circumstances, I do think there's value to being able to check your work. Okay, so first of all, poker has fewer variables. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say yeah, that, yeah. right? Like there are fixed s- things that you can do in search situations to not be exploited just based on using math, right? That is not necessarily a thing that comes up in magic. Like there is no deck that you can play in any given tournament where, you know, math says you are the favorite to win because everyone's decks differ so much and the players differ so much and who you get paired against differs. Like there, there's no way that you can just straight rely on math and basically nothing else, which is basically all I'm saying. I think that I use math in a lot of different ways, uh, subconsciously mm-hmm. in magic, just not actively. So like when I'm talking about maybe adding a 19th land to Hogak to increase the range of mulligan hands that you can keep and stuff like that, like obviously that's math, you know, and that's just me kind of eyeballing it or whatever. And I'm sure someone could do like the literal math and maybe have it be a little bit more accurate. But again, that's where a bunch of variables come into play where, you know, you have to do the math on like, you having like a certain combination of like one drops uh, versus blue white, or like, you know, maybe you only have two one drops versus John and maybe they kill your first one drop or whatever. Like there, there are just so many things that come up where you can't just math it. Cause the math answer is going to lie to you. I think that is very true. And as in most things, there's benefits to both sides, but there is a lot of living proof. I've seen that you don't have to be a math person to succeed in magic. You need some basic math for sure. Like you got to do combat math, but even then I've seen people who like, and and oftentimes I would honestly include myself in this. 
who just need more time for combat math because I'm thinking about so many different things. It takes me a second to isolate exactly what I should be focused on in that moment of combat math. Whereas you just gave me a bunch of figures. I could rattle it off. No problem. It's getting my head into the right space to focus on what's important in that moment that I struggle with. So I think you're totally fine not having that background. You just need to figure out your workarounds and figure out where you can get your edges from despite not being able to point to the hardline numbers. Yeah, I mean, like my my math intuition might be good enough that even though I'm not from that background, like I'm still using math in a variety of ways, right? It's like when I'm building a deck list, like why am I deciding that I want 25 land instead of 24 mm-hmm. or whatever? Like a lot of it is going off of like feel and intuition and how I envision games playing out with like this sort of mana curve. And if I'm under this much pressure on average from a standard deck, like am I just super dead if I don't play land four on turn four? Like if yes, maybe I need to play the 25th land, especially if I can make up uh, from flooding a little bit, etc. Right? Like there, there is a decent amount of math that goes into that especially when you start factoring in like mulligans and whatever. But the the point that I just want to make is that I will never be like, oh, this is the end all be all decision because math said so, mm-hmm. because I think that that is total BS. However, I do think using it, using math to some degree is fine where it's like, you know, looking at uh, win percentages from the MC just to like kind of eyeball it and get a sense for what the matchups might be like, Right. I think that is fine. But to point at the math and be like, oh, you know, Hogak won 56%, therefore it's like not that good or whatever. You know, I think that's just silly. Basically agree. I think you and I should sign up for a calculus class. We'll go, we'll attend one at our local university. We'll take notes and see how we do. Once we have some real math knowledge, check back probably like two or three years from now, because I have a feeling I'm going to fail the first time. But maybe in... A couple of years when we're calculus class graduates, we can come back and uh, evaluate this whole discussion. Sounds like a lot of work, my man. Okay. I guess it's just me. I mean, hey, if, if dude, if you want to go back to college, you know. No, I've, I've done a lot of college, Gerald. I have the bachelor's and the doctorate level degree at this point, and I'm using neither. I come here and talk magic with you every week, and there were no college classes on podcasting with Jerry Thompson, unfortunately. So... Uh, it was woefully inadequate to prepare me for my present life. Probably shouldn't dump any more money in that range. No, I think I, you're using them kind of like how I'm using the math. You know, like you're writing magic articles, which your English major probably comes in handy with helping you and blah, blah, blah. You know, hopefully, hopefully I'm getting at least that little tiny bit of value from all of those investments. All of these things and experiences help shape us into who we are. And you're an excellent podcaster, so. I guess if so you want to so pod- if you want to podcast with me, the math is a hundred percent saying that you need to become a lawyer first. Oh, nice math work! Boom. That's game. Did I do it? Did it. Uh-